You're listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract, the official podcast of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract is produced for your enjoyment and is focused on the latest journal-published research and science in the field of addiction medicine. Remember to add us to your favorites in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at ASAMorg and Facebook. Now, let's go beyond the abstract. Welcome to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. I'm your host, Dr. Sean McNeil, Digital Content Editor for the Journal of Addiction Medicine. Today we're joined by Dr. Lisa Marsh. She's a professor of psychiatry at Dartmouth, director of the Center for Technology and Behavioral Health, as well as the director of the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Marsh. I would like to start by asking you to describe your background in the field of addiction and also to describe how you started working with young patients. Sure. Well, I was first involved in addiction research when I was a student, actually starting as an undergrad and then as an early graduate student um, working at, um, at, at Johns Hopkins University in a with a group that um, just did remarkable clinical trials research evaluating different models of treatment for addiction, both um, various medication and medication and behavioral treatments for addiction. And I had never been exposed uh, to this kind of research before, and I was immediately really struck by two things. One was the the incredible rigor with which this group conducted their research. I had never seen such um, exceptional rigor in the kind of clinical trials research that was being done in, in, at this place. But the, but the second piece was I was so struck by the chronic relapsing nature of addiction. You know, I worked a lot um, for, for a long time with, and continue to with people who are struggling with substance use disorders. And I remember you know, just being so affected by one person after another indicating their strong desire to stop their substance use. You know, they lost their children or they had serious health consequences from it or all kinds of significant negative effects of substance use and saying they're going to stop, they're going to stop and then not stopping. And I just thought, wow, this is such a powerful thing that I didn't understand. So I was really struck by the importance of trying to understand how to help folks who are suffering from this. And that started all of it. And then I went on for my um, advanced studies in addiction and uh, got heavily involved initially in uh, clinical trials uh, treatment research, starting, uh, relevant to our topic today, starting with the treatment of opioid use disorder in adults. And this was before the medication buprenorphine, um, suboxone, was uh, even FDA approved, and we were doing a lot of early trials looking at the utility, effectiveness, and safety of this medication with um, treatment of adults with opioid use disorders. And you know, every now and then in that early work, we'd see a teenager trying to get help, you know, someone under age 18, and all the clinical trials were not allowing anyone under age 18. And then we saw that continue to increase, not only in our community where I was doing research, but um, in talking with colleagues around the country. And it, it seemed like it's such an important area that was so understudied about what if you have this really young cohort, you know, young teenagers who are involved in opioid use 
what is science-based care for that group? And that's when I started you know, looking at the literature and seeking to understand this better and finding that there was virtually there's very, very limited research on rigorous research, really trying to understand in a systematic way what are optimal science-based models of care for teenagers with opioid use disorder. Right. And in addition to the paucity of research out there, it seems that there's a lot of barriers to young patients when it comes to getting treatment. Uh, Barriers like certain family decisions that have been made, uh, clinicians that might want to use short-term versus long-term treatment, uh, maybe clinicians that are opposed to using opiate agonist therapy in young patients. Um, Maybe you could speak to some of the decisions that go into treating uh, patients in this group and also how to address these barriers. Yeah, these are great points. You know, I what everything you just described we encountered, um, including particularly when we started this line of research, uh, probably in the in the nineteen ninety uh, nineteen ninety late nineteen nineties, I guess, when we first started this line of research, um, right around two thousand. It was we we had from so many you know groups from families from pediatricians from addiction specialty specialists this perception that you know we could just we could use behavioral treatments we could use residential treatments but that medication particularly um, something like buprenorphine for example was something that wasn't necessary or wasn't being used and there was a lot of resistance to it which is interesting because in in psychiatry in general and in sort of other areas of behavioral health pharmacotherapies have been embraced for certain types of um, issues with youth but in terms of thinking about treatment of opioid use disorder there was a lot of resistance to that and thinking well they're so early in their opioid use career that you know that's not necessary and um, and so models of care did not routinely offer this and unfortunately still across this country many models of care still do not routinely offer this and um, I think this is changing in a positive way based on lots of you know compelling data to show the significant um, impact that medication like buprenorphine has as part of a multi-component model for care of youth. But when we started this, given that we're starting from, you know, from a place where there wasn't really any systematic clinical trials research, at least at that point, looking at medication, particularly buprenorphine safety and efficacy, we started in a pretty conservative way. And in fact, in in the the paper that we've just published, this review paper, um, that paper describes our early research, which the very first study was a medication-assisted taper comparing buprenorphine to clonidine. And, you know, some people would say, well, why did you start there? Well, because, you know, when you're working with 13 to 18-year-olds, that kind of question had never been asked about the relative of utility of these two medications and the safety of, of, of buprenorphine with this population. So we started in a data-informed way to say, okay, let's start with a taper, let's compare these meds. We clearly saw great superiority in terms of clinical outcomes, much better treatment retention, much better ability to discontinue opioid use when offered buprenorphine versus clonidine, and then decided, okay, let's systematically build on that. What do we do next? Let's extend duration of medication treatment and see how that impacts outcomes. And so the idea was to just, uh, in a data-informed way, that was cautious, really, because of where we were starting from, to understand um, what might be the most empirically informed, evidence-based approaches to caring for teenagers. And looking at those randomized controlled trials and uh, considering your primary outcome, which was achieving abstinence, it seems pretty clear that the longer course of treatment is beneficial. And, well, would you say there are any other outcomes 
that maybe you'd like to consider in the future? Yeah, well, it is definitely the case that all the data that we have thus far, both from randomized control trials and from a number of observational studies that have been published in the peer review literature, that longer duration of buprenorphine treatment for youth is better than shorter duration. So it's not, we're not seeing a dissimilarity with those patterns relative to their adult counterparts who have opioid use disorder. We have seen that benefit not only in terms of reduction in opioid use, but also improved treatment treatment retention. We have also seen um, impact on some other outcomes, including uh, HIV risk behavior. So there's some data, it's limited, but some data showing that youth with opioid use disorder who use buprenorphine uh, reduce injection drug use and that the longer they use it, the greater reduction you see in that injection risk behavior. We are currently looking at um, some uh, mental health, some psychosocial and mental health outcomes to see how uh, outcomes comes in buprenorphine treatment for opioid use disorder in teens impact um, things like depression and anxiety and some co-occurring issues that we see in many of the youth that we've worked with. Um, I think those are important outcomes to look at. But you know what? I'll tell you what I think is most important to look at. We talk a lot about, you know, the patient and the patient outcomes and good outcomes, bad outcomes. But I think the biggest issue that's understudied is, the, is, is how to best tackle the system level problems in our care models for youth with opioid use disorders. Access to effective medication treatments is incredibly limited. It is often, whenever it is offered, confined to addiction specialty treatment systems, which are highly stigmatized. It's well documented that many teens don't want to go to these systems. Parents don't often want their kids to go to these systems. And I think reducing barriers to access to effective resources and, and in, in offering resources around treatment for substance use disorders for teens in general medical settings is a really important um, need and next step in research and in clinical practice. And um, in fact, in some of the research that we've reported in this review paper, we, at, in one of the trials reported in that paper, uh, were asking youth to come in pretty often because it was one of the earliest studies of buprenorphine. So we wanted to look really carefully about all the you know, potential impacts of the medication, look at safety, look at any adverse events, really systematic, careful documentation of this. And it was so burdensome for youth to come in with that kind of frequency and, you know, dropout was high because of this. So when we started saying, okay, let's be more flexible, let's give take-home medications, let's think about models of care that are more responsive to the schedules and interests of where youth are, we had a huge impact a huge impact when we just, you know, re reduce those kinds of barriers like attendance requirements and frequency of, of contact with the healthcare system. When we did that, we saw a big spike in increase in retention and a big drop in opioid use among this sample compared to our other model of care. So I think there's so much to be done with the model of care and the system level problems that really are barriers to helping these kids early on and helping to prevent us escalation of this problem and continued opioid use. There, relatedly, um, a colleague, who's a co-author on this paper, Sharon Levy, 
in Boston, along with some of her colleagues, have been trialing in primary care systems, in pediatric primary care systems, embedding screening processes and care delivery for teens with problematic opioid use right in the context of that general medical setting where they care for all other aspects of youth care and they can consult with psychiatrists or engage addiction specialists in that care model, but you're doing it in a context where kids are going for other general health settings. And I think those kinds of models are really understudied and there's a tremendous opportunity to better understand how they work, uh, how they can have an impact, how can we scale access through some of these additional systems of care. And so um, given what we, what we now know uh, with the trends that you mentioned, uh, what are the take-home messages for clinicians? And also what would you recommend to clinicians in terms of meeting these patients where they're at and initiating treatment? Yeah, well, I think that um, it's a great question. I think that it's really clear that buprenorphine medication is a very important and impactful component of a multi-component model of care for youth with opioid use disorder. The data very strongly support that. The American Academy of Pediatrics, fortunately, has recently embraced that stance and recommended this to pediatricians um, and recommended this, you know, in a model where they can sustain and sort of stabilize kids with opioid addiction with these medications. So I think embracing the utility of this safe and effective medication as part of the model uh, the data suggests that this is going to really give the best clinical outcomes and not being afraid to clinically assess, you know, what duration might make sense. We don't have a lot of studies with teens that have looked at long-term outcomes from long-term um, periods of medication treatment. But again, the, the data suggests the longer the better. So there's a lot of clinical opportunity to, to look at, um, uh, you know, clinically what makes sense for the duration of medication treatment. But I think, you know, along with that, and we outline in our paper, um, some of the other considerations like psychosocial support that could be really useful for teens as part of these care models to embrace the family, to embrace, you know, sort of where they are in their life in terms of school-related goals and career-related goals. We have found that a lot of these kids don't have families that um, are engaged in their care models. So I think flexible models of care that don't rely on family engagement but can um, embrace families and support systems when they are available would be great. Um, and, you know, I think, um, you know, one of the things we don't really know is even though the data show that medication treatment is effective and the longer the better. We've definitely had a lot of kids say, well, you know, I don't want to be on this for the rest of my life. So really trying to understand what the goals of the kids are and seeing if this is something with early intervention that um, can be disrupted and that we can change the clinical trajectory of these kids um, is a really important place to go. But again, just to underscore, I think, you know, pediatricians and other primary care providers, um, you know, child psychiatrists, there's a tremendous opportunity to embrace science-based pharmacotherapy treatment for opioid use disorders in teenagers. And it would be lovely to have more clinical observation data reported in literature too when people try this, case reports or cohort studies or observational studies um, to add to the literature, which is growing but still um, could benefit from more sharing across the healthcare system around outcomes with this kind of work. Great. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to elaborate on regarding this topic? Um, you know, thanks. I appreciate it. You know, I th just think, you know, the whole nation is in this dialogue, active dialogue around 
the national opioid crisis and, you know, people are calling it a modern plague and we're all trying to seek to understand how to tackle this crisis at a national level. And, you know, although there's a lot of focus on overdose deaths, which of course is an incredibly thing to focus on and prevention of overdoses and expanding treatment capacity for adults, I think there's an opportunity to enhance the dialogue and, and action around around enhancing resources for youth, not only treatment capacity for youth, but prevention initiatives. And how do we understand youth's, you know, the sort of the trajectory of, 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 of engagement and then escalation of opioid use among youth and provide science-based prevention programming and resources to help early deliver early intervention to these kids, you know, how in this national dialogue is the next generation seeing this and viewing this and being impacted by this, not only from parental use, but in terms of their own exposure to and risk for engagement with opioids. So I think it's really important, perhaps more than ever, in this sort of unprecedented time we've got in this nation around the opioid crisis, to not forget this young generation and to not forget about um, effective science-based programming that we can scale to a population level for kids. Well, Dr. Marsh, it's been a pleasure. I want to thank you for joining us today on the podcast and uh, helping to teach us a bit about uh, treating these young patients. That's great. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to do this. I really appreciate the opportunity. This ends today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. All of today's show links can be found in the show notes. Remember, you can preview additional abstracts at journalofaddictionmedicine.com. This program was produced by the American Society of Addiction Medicine.